Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Nick Learns Everything. This is a podcast that I decided to start because I think a big problem in the world today is the fact that most people aren't willing to admit when they don't know something. And I've always viewed myself as a lifelong learner. Like, uh, I'm a very curious person. And I think that taking an approach to life where you look at things that you don't know and admitting that to yourself and maybe to other people too, and then taking the time to go learn about it is a very important skill. And I think if more people did that, we would find ourselves having more conversations about how to move society and humanity forward, how to help other people, how to be productive. And instead of the sort of fighting and the arguing that you see um, consistently today. And I think that I would like this podcast to be able to serve as an example of that. I know someday when I leave this existence and I go to whatever happens after this, I want when that day comes to have tried my best to learn as much about this experience that I'm living now on this world at this time and in the past even, this world in the past and the things that have led us to now, I want to try to learn as much about that stuff as I can. And so my hope is that through this podcast, I'll be able to kind of share the things that I learned myself with you. You might find them interesting. You might not. That's okay. But my hope is that I can at least inspire you to go do the same thing in your own life and look at the things that you find interesting, look at the things that you don't know, admit that you don't know them, and then go learn about them. So that's why we're doing, uh, we're going on this little bit of a journey together, and uh, I hope it's, uh, I hope it's going to be a good time. I really look forward to it. I'm really excited about this. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer here. I'll be super honest. I'm probably going to use some adult language on here because I am a human adult, and that's how I talk, and I think uh, that's how uh, a lot of human adults talk. So if if you're Thinking that you're going to get some sort of like censored version of me, that is not what is going to happen here. I'm going to pretty much shoot it uh, straight down the middle for you. So if you're the type of person that thinks that Harry Potter books should be banned because they promote dark magic, then I'm just telling you now, this is probably not the podcast for you. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be as honest as possible about that. I'm not trying to be a dick. Um, I just say that as a joke because of how stupid I think those people are. Uh, if you're one of those people... Um, yeah, this is definitely not the podcast for you. I think, uh, ultimately I respect you. I love you. I'm rooting for humanity. If you're the type of person that, uh, might be offended by the language or something like that. Um, I still wish you the best, but I wanted to come on here on this first episode and give you that disclaimer because I'm probably not going to do it again. So I just want to kind of make sure you know what you're getting into, uh, as we move forward here. So with that being said, here we go. Um, you know what I recently learned is that in the United States of America, there are five bank lobbyists for every one member of Congress. And I want you to really think about that because that is crazy. The fact that there are five people designated to every member of Congress to promote ideas, policies, whatever it may be that benefit banks specifically is incredible. And I stumbled upon this because my fiance and I were watching the documentary, The Inside Job, uh, or Inside Job, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in like 2011. And they mentioned that statistic. And it just blew my mind. I'm 
admittedly familiar with lobbyists and lobbying and um, that kind of industry. I have tried to look into that stuff before. But when you hear the stat where it's five to one, it really kind of made me want to wrap my head around how it's possible that that is even occurring. And so it kind of sent me down this rabbit hole. And I so I want to kind of take you through that right now. Um, so let's start with a little bit of boring stuff. I promise it's going to be like a minute and then we'll get into like all the real shit like with the uh, with the lobbyists. And I promise it gets less boring after this. But just so we can kind of set a, a little bit of uh, a background here and give you some information about banking lobbying uh, for banks. The banking lobby refers to technically this is like a definition that I pulled off the Internet. Um, it is uh, the banking lobby refers to representatives from various firms and organizations seeking favorable terms from governments for big banks and other financial service companies through lobbying and advocacy groups. So that's a lot of sort of jargon. But basically what it means is the banking lobby exists because banks want to pay lobbyists to promote their interests to lawmakers, right? So people in Congress. So the banks want to be able to have an influence over Congress, and they do this through lobbyists. Now, the spending that the banking lobby does is literally insane. It is absolutely insane. I'm going to read you off some numbers here and try to keep in mind that these numbers are from one calendar year. So from 2017 to 2018, which, by the way, was a not presidential election year. This was a, uh, a period of time. Now, there were a lot of like Senate elections and rep uh, House of Representative uh, elections going on at that time. But the financial sector companies in that one calendar year period spent $922 million on campaigns, political campaigns. They donated $922 million in one year to political campaigns. They also, on top of that, so that number is just the political campaigns. Then on top of that number, they spent another $957 million on lobbying, which brought that total to $1.9 billion, with a B, dollars in one calendar year. So the financial services sector, banks, and companies that work with banks spent $1.9 billion a year essentially influencing our representatives in Congress. Now, if you break that math down, and I did because I think it's a very important illustration of what's going on here, that breaks down to $3.5 million spent by banks per member of Congress in one year year. $3.5 million per member of Congress. Now, in 2018, the U.S. median household income, so the money that people are bringing in per household on average, was $63,179. And so what that means is that banks spent the income of 55 American households per member of Congress. And guess what? The banks did not exactly have the average American household in mind when they were spending that money. Um, 
they were not exactly spending that money uh, to get things done that would benefit the average American household that makes 60 grand or whatever it was a year. Now, to be honest, this is where we get into possibly my favorite part of the lobbying game because of how ridiculous it is and how transparent it is, is the fact that America itself is governed by corporations, I think is still a thing that escapes people for some reason. However, if you look at a lot of the laws that are passed in the United States, a lot of them are literally written by lobbyists. And so this is what brings us back around full circle to the movie I was talking about, The Inside Job, because that movie covers what happened, uh, what led up to then what happened during and after the financial crisis in the United States. It sort of covers that as a sort of a, a whole. And obviously the reason it wins the Academy Award in 2011 is because it's it affected everyone. I mean, everyone in the country was affected by the financial crisis in 2008. Now, I myself am only 29 years old. So at that time, you have to imagine that was 12 years ago. So I was only 17. So while aware of it and... While it certainly was something that I think my parents could speak to a lot better, um, it's still something that I was aware of. But the reality is that in 2008, the financial sector of this country basically screwed over everyone in America um, through a variety of insane things that they were allowed to do over a large period of years prior to 2008, um, basically, they completely collapsed the American economy. Now, where I bring that back to the lobbyists, and I kind of want to tie this all together, is the fact that the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath is a really good example of how lobbyists actually help draft bills for members of Congress to sign. So a lot of times we think that the members of Congress all sit around and they think to themselves like, all right, how do we help Americans? They listen to their constituency. They're trying to think of ways to benefit us. And then they bring those bills uh, out into the floor, right? Whether it's maybe, you know, the House of Representatives or the Senate or whatever. They bring those bills up and we they take a look and they vote for them and we either get legislation passed or not. And you think that's sort of all coming from their sort of, I guess, you, their imagination. Like, it seems easy to think that the politicians are the ones thinking up all these ideas for these bills through conversations they're having or stuff that they're learning. But the reality is, is that these senators and these representatives did not wake up in the morning and think to themselves, you know what, in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, you know who really needs our help? Those banks, those poor bankers, they absolutely need our help. However, they passed a bunch of legislation in the aftermath of 2008 that absolutely helped those banks and those bankers. And the reason that that happened is because the lobbyists for those banks helped to write those laws. And I want to get into some reporting that the New York Times did about this that I came across because I think it points to what I'm saying here. And I'm just going to go ahead and read a little bit of this. Um, the 2014 omnibus budget deal uh, Congress used to secretly put taxpayers basically on the hook for these bailouts. 
In 2014, the representatives repealed a law that prevented the American people from bailing out big banks that engage in risky derivatives trading. So basically, prior to 2008, there were laws that prevented us from having to use our tax money to bail out a bank in case a bank fucked everything up. Now, after 2008, we then, or sorry, in 2014, we by we, I mean our representatives, repealed that law. And so the New York Times reported that 70 of the 85 lines in the language that killed that derivatives bill and made it possible for our tax dollars to bail out these banks, 70 of the 85 lines in the language in that bill came from a piece of model legislation that was drafted by Citigroup lobbyists. So Citigroup is in like the bank. Uh, the bank that played a huge role in the financial crisis. Um, they also received billions of dollars of federal stimulus. Their lobbyists helped to write the bill that allowed our tax money to help bail them out. Now, 70 of 85 lines is an insane number. But that same report also revealed that there were two crucial paragraphs prepared by Citigroup. Uh, in, in conjunction with the Wall Street banks. And they were copied nearly word for word, those two paragraphs. You can actually view those original documents and you can literally see them like next to each other and they're l the same exact thing. You can see what the lobbyists put and the bill that then uh, came to pass um, in the Congress. And the reality of that is the fact that the banks, in that sense, used their lobbyists to write their own rules. Basically, there was a rule that said, hey, you guys messed everything up here and absolutely drove the economy um, through the ground, not even to the ground. I mean, you dr drove it absolutely through the ground. And we now we have a law where you cannot be bailed out by us. So all they did was go to their lobbyists and their lobbyists went ahead and changed that law. Um, so that our tax money then went to bail them out. Now, the reality is that there are other organizations that do this same type of work. So there's literally a nonprofit, as in they pay no taxes. They are a nonprofit. And they do this type of work all the time. So that organization is called the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is basically exactly what I figured a bunch of rich old whites would call an organization that is going to help companies write laws and then hand them to Congress people to just pass through uh, in their interest. And I'm honestly surprised that they didn't call it like the super America blue jeans for dogs with wheelchairs organization because that's what they always call all these organizations when they're going to do some bullshit it's always like the freedom foundation for a better america tomorrow and it ends up being a front for some sort of insane thing like drug cartel money or something like this is this happens all the time anytime they want to do some nonsense it's always named something fantastic right the patriot act allows the government to spy on your cell phone but it's called the patriot act so it's probably uh, that's probably fine right this is like what they do all the time. So it's not surprising. But the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC as it's known, is a conservative organization that's literally been caught handing bills to representatives 
to have them introduce in state legislatures. So, for example, there was a literal Florida lawmaker who tried to introduce a bill in the state legislature in Florida. And of course it was in Florida. Um, of course, of course it was in Florida, but tried to hand this bill off in Florida and literally on accident left the mission statement of Alec as the first paragraph got caught, then took that paragraph away and resubmitted the bill. And the fact of that, that is just the way that some of the bills that uh, become laws in this country are written is wild. It's absolutely wild. I mean, it's just the it's it's just some cowboy shit at the end of the day. Like it's just like, hey, we would like it if this bill happened because it will benefit our bank. So like, let's just pay somebody a little bit of money and they'll make it happen because they'll just hand it off to some congressperson and be like, here, push this through and I'll give you some money, right? And we're gonna get into that in a little bit. But I think when you talk about that reality, which is the the reality that these companies are able to take money, give that money to a lobbyist, that lobbyist is able to pass that money onto a politician to get something done. It seems like that there's no way that that's illegal. There's no way you're able to do that. And that is true. There is no way that you're able to just do that as plainly as I just said. But I think that we all know that there's no way that was going to be the case. They're not plainly doing it like that. So, I think that the best way to sort of explain the way that this happens is to take it from the words of a lobbyist himself. So we are going to look at a quote from a lobbyist named uh, Jack Abramoff. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. I don't. Yeah, I don't really care. This guy, you'll we'll you'll find out about this guy in a second. But uh, Jack Abramoff uh, was quoted as saying that you can't take a congressman to lunch for twenty five dollars and buy a mistake. Because that would be, as a lobbyist, you cannot do that. That would be a problem. However, you can take him to a fundraising lunch and not only buy him that steak, but give him $25,000 extra and call it a fundraiser. And basically, it's as simple as that. You have a foundation funded by a bank pay a lobbying firm for some sort of consulting service or some nonsense. And then that lobbying firm hosts a fundraiser where at the end of the night, they're able to give a politician a boatload of money and some really sound industry advice that they might want to consider the next time that bill about, I don't know, maybe uh, more regulations on banks comes up. Here's some sound advice on why we want that bill to die immediately. Oh, and here's some money at this fundraiser. That's essentially uh, what is happening there. They're just using back channels uh, to do it, but that is the way that they're doing it. But I want to go back to my main man, Jack Abramoff, for a second, because I would love to give you a picture of the special type of person that works as a lobbyist. And oftentimes, they are politicians once they are out of office. I believe I saw a statistic that said in the 1970s, about 5% of outgoing politicians, when they got voted out of office, became lobbyists. It was about 5%. That was in the 70s. As of today, that number for senators is 50%. And I want to say it was r- around 50% also for um, people that were in the House of Representatives. Uh, 
So a lot of times you're just dealing with the politicians who are now out of office and they move into lobbying because they know how the game works. But I want to go back to uh, Jack for a second here because uh, he he is the type of person that I think you'd need to see a snapshot of uh, because these are the type of people that work in this industry. And I think this is important. So this guy, Jack Abramoff, has had two different movies made about him. And I kid you not, in one of those movies, he is played by none other than Kevin Spacey. It, I literally could not make this up if I tried. He's, this, this gentleman is played by Kevin Spacey in a movie. Um, I guess it's a great minds think alike sort of situation there. But in, in addition to being a founding member of the International Freedom Foundation... Uh, of course, another one of these names, man, the International Freedom Foundation. Well, the International Freedom Foundation allegedly helped fund apartheid in South Africa. So that's uh, it's an example of what I'm talking about with the names of these things. But uh, Jack Abramoff was a founding member of that organization. And this guy was sentenced to six years in federal prison for his role in what is called the Jack Abramoff Indian Lobbying Scandal in which Jack and two other lobbyists charged Native American tribes that were looking to develop casinos on their reservations an estimated $85 million in lobbying fees. They charged these tribes $85 million in lobbying fees. And in addition to that insane overbill, I don't, how do I would like to know how that was uh, presented to these tribes like hey guys here's the deal you guys want casinos all right so all we got to do is go ahead and get that uh passed the uh, get some legislation passed so you guys can have casinos on these reservations all it's going to cost you is 85 million dollars <laughs> like the fact that that itself is what they went with is insane and obviously they were able to charge them exorbitant fees. Uh, I mean, th that's how you get to that type of number. You're charging them these insane fees, which is basically all going to profits that they were chopping up. They all got multi-million dollar profits out of this scenario. But the craziest part of this scheme is the fact that Abramoff and his associates secretly orchestrated lobbying against their clients' interests so they could charge them more for lobbying services. So what this guy did was he got Ralph Reed, who is another gem, by the way. This guy is phenomenal. Oh, man. You got to... I, I would have this... I would talk to this guy tomorrow because I would love to find out how a person like this... I don't even know how his brain works. It's wildly fascinating. But he was a Christian activist and was at one point the chair of the Georgia Republican Party. Abramoff got him to get Christian organizations to fight against gambling and try to prohibit the casinos from existing so then he could go back to the Native American tribes and ask them for more lobbying money because, hey, this crazy Christian guy, I don't even know him, but he's there all up in arms about not wanting gambling. So if you guys give me more money, I can probably get the politicians to go ahead and not listen to him and they'll listen to me. Meanwhile, he's the one that orchestrated the whole thing. Now, like I said, uh, this guy went to jail for six years because or he got sentenced to jail for six years because of that. I didn't even look. I'm sure he probably did none of that time. 
he like I, I would imagine it's probably a mess if I dive into that but uh these are the type of people that are attracted to lobbying and I know that every lobbyist in the world is not engaged in this sort of insane criminal activity and I'm sure somebody listening right now is like I know a great lobbyist I'm I understand I understand that every single lobbyist is not some sort of douchebag who's stealing 85 million dollars from Native American tribes like this guy like I understand that however the reality is like these this is an industry that is going to attract these types of people because they're they're the types of people that understand how to work in corruption in government they understand it very 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 easily they know how to maneuver it a lot of them are former government officials and so they know how to get this stuff done and these are the type of people that are are attracted to this type of work these are the type of people that are recruited for this type of work and i think that lobbying does have a place in politics i do think it does because we can't expect every member of con you've seen some of the people that we have in congress we're supposed to expect every single one of them to be an economist and some sort of professor of ethics and we're supposed to also want them to know how the economy works but we also need them to know how environmental science is currently structured legally and it's not going to happen they're not going to know how to do all this stuff so lobbyists can come in and actually educate them on these certain industries when these types of legislation are up for debate. People from those industries, these lobbyists can come in and speak to them about it. Now, in the interest of those industries, right, whatever piece of that industry you fall on, but I do think there is a small amount of value in this educational piece that lobbyists are able to do. However, what bank needs to spend three and a half million dollars or, as I said, 55 households worth of income per member of Congress to convince them that the banks need help after, once again, after they ruined everything and probably will in the future. If you take a look at the the way that banks are now regulated, um compared to that period right after 2008. I'm not going to get into all that, but if you want to go ahead and look at how banks are regulated right now and then try to convince me that another terrible situation isn't coming uh, because of the work of these lobbyists who, as I mentioned at the beginning, spent uh, or the bank spent $1.9 billion on lobbyists and political campaign contributions in a single year. Um I would love to hear from any pro-bank lobbyists that exist in the world. Uh, I would love to see the people who are protesting on behalf of all the great uh, bank lobbying activities that are going on. But I just feel like that's probably unlikely. I would gladly interview one of them right here on this show if they exist. But I think like most systems, this one needs reform. It, it absolutely needs reform. And I I'm not the guy to explain to you how to get that reform I don't I have I don't know but I, I do know that this system obviously needs a reform from what I've seen and I hope it happens in my lifetime I really do uh, I really really do I hope that the I hope it happens in my lifetime but I do think that people need to understand how much of America is governed by corporations and how much 
political interests are sort of mixed in with those uh, corporate interests. And I think that that's a, a very important important thing that people need to be aware of. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is to the banking lobby. I really, I don't. I just know that reform is obviously needed. And I think if you look at these statistics, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't think that. You know, I think uh, especially some people that were truthfully impacted by the financial crisis in 2008, I think it's a little bit unfair that people without the education on these type of scenarios blame the wrong people for what happened in 2008. I think their focus and their anger is in the wrong places. And I think it probably was from the start. And the banking lobby is a big part of, I think, that smokescreen that comes up that's like, hey, don't look at us. Look over there. It's these people's fault. Um, but yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day, we need that reform. So if you enjoyed this podcast, um, you know, it's fun to do it. I think uh, if, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe to it. I'm going to try to get as many episodes out as I can, to be honest with you. And uh, go ahead and share it with your family and friends if you think it's somebody something that somebody might like. Um, I would really appreciate that. I really would. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, don't take anything I say too seriously, to be honest with you. I, uh, I mean, what the hell do I know at the end of the day? I'm just a guy <laughs> looking shit up on my laptop, man. At the end of the day, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I never finished college. So what do I know? I mean, maybe, maybe honestly, maybe the last day of college, like the last day of class, they teach you why the bank lobby is great. I mean, I would not know. I think uh, it's very possible. Maybe the last day of college, they're like, hey, and here's why the bank lobby is a fantastic organization. But I would not know. So don't take anything I take here. Uh, I say here too seriously. I just hope uh, it was informational and you enjoyed it. But as always, um, a shout out to all my family and friends. Uh, when this podcast inevitably ascends to the top of the charts, I want to make sure that I have always consistently from the beginning been ending every show with the thanks to the people that got me here. And if it flops, you know, it's uh, it's still nice to give people a shout out. I'm sure they'll hear this episode. So I love you guys. Thanks for the support. And I'll see you guys next time. Until then, just keep asking questions. Just keep asking questions, trying to learn stuff. I think a more educated public uh, about everything, anything. I think a more educated public is a way that we can help move society forward, bring some unity uh, to this country and to the world, frankly. And so just keep asking questions, keep trying to learn things, and don't be afraid to admit when you don't know something. So I'll see you guys later. Have a good one, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it.